This podcast features explicit language and spoilers. Welcome to Better Late Than Never, a movie podcast where I invite a friend to watch a blockbuster, cult favorite, or otherwise culturally significant film that they've never seen before. After we watch the movie, my guest will decide if it was better late, that they've been missing out by not having seen the film, or never. The movie just didn't live up to the hype for them. My name is Dave, and I'm your host. Today, I am joined by returning friend Josh and we are discussing a movie that he's never seen before, The Fly, from 1986. Josh, welcome back, dude. Hey, good read on that, man. That was great. Thanks. I love it. it. I put a little sauce on it. Oh, yeah, jazzed it up for the fourth. I'm almost in the five-timers club. Almost. You're I'm almost there. Making my way. Yes, The Fly. Very excited. Yeah, so Josh, you uh, you requested this film. Would you like to tell both me and the audience why? Yeah, we had a had quite the backstory here. After we watched our last epic together, Dune, which oh, God. <laughs> I'm not going to get into. Don't remind me, please. <laughs> uh, we had a pretty bad taste in our mouths, and so we went and ate some delicious chicken wings. And then we came back, and we spent we did that thing where you spend hours looking at various movies to watch, and we landed on a very obscure movie called spider by director david cronenberg mm-hmm. and spider uh well do you want to what was your take on spider i didn't like it dave did not care for spider i loved it i thought it was awesome and it stars uh Ra- Ra- rafe fines rafe rafe fines and uh other uh returning cronenberg actress uh, miranda richardson and gabriel I- byrne and Gabriel Byrne. I think I say returning because I think Miranda Richardson is in uh, Madam Butterfly, but I'm realizing her big movie is The Crying Game. I think I'm wrong about that. So maybe I, anyway, I really enjoyed it. And we had just watched a movie by David Lynch. And so since then, I have been making a uh, concerted effort to work my way through the David Cronenberg catalog. Yeah, you've been on a Cronenberg deep dive for like a while at this point. Yes, and what I've done for the listener is I'd like to compile. So here is my experience with David Cronenberg. In the early 2000s, I saw some of Existence because Dave lent me the DVD and I didn't really care for it. It's it's not his best film. I then watched some of Naked Lunch and also was not in the right headspace for it. It's not his best film. <laughs> I then watched, uh, several years went by, five or six. I then watched A History of Violence, Eastern Promises, and Rabid. And love them all. Mm. Rabbit is a little, I mean, it's 70s gore horror, and it's not a really 
awesomely crafted film, but it's it was like, oh, this is what is this? Rabid David Cronenberg. Okay, cool. well, it's from a radically different phase of his career than yeah. the other two. <laughs> yes. Uh, so then we watched Spider. So then I went on a mission and watched Maps to the Stars. I rewatched Existence. How was it the second time? I liked it more because I kind of got the style. I was expecting the Cronenberg, like, you know, uh, grossness, grossness. But also he has a it's like uh, something I, I don't want to get too deep into uh, now because I think yeah, we're going to talk, we'll talk about, about it later. But he has a particular style camera look and okay. I was ready for it. Um, right. Dialogue writing um, maps. So maps of stars extends again. Cosmopolis. Which I did not make it through. Cosmopolis is not great. That's the Robert Pattinson one? Yeah. Okay. And actually has Emily Hampshire in it. Uh, oh, really? Which is very cool. Yeah, uh, Josh and I are both huge fans of a Canadian actress named Emily Hampshire because she is on one of the greatest television shows ever to grace the screen, 12 Monkeys. I would say one of the greatest sci-fi shows never seen by anyone but the two of us, probably. Oh, God. If you get a chance, check out that show, because it is so good. Anyway, please go on. I picked up, uh, then I watched Shivers, which is his very first movie, Mm -hmm. and similar to Rabid, and I enjoyed that, and then wrapped it up most recently with Dead Ringers. Oh, nice. An excellent, excellent, creepy-as-fuck movie. No, that actually might be his best film. Arguably, I'm, I've am i still got many. I've still got Crash. I've got Scanners. I've got the movie we're going to watch tonight, The Fly. Yep. So, yes, and that brings us to The Fly, which is a Cronenberg movie that I haven't seen. That is obviously one of his more well-known and one of, I believe, his more successful ones. Although you'll, you're the historian here, so you'll tell me whether I'm wrong about that. But also, and we don't have to get into this too much at this moment, but I'm going through a lot of changes in my own life. I liked the parallel because what I know of The Fly is that it is about a man who physically transforms uh, into a fly. <laughs> yeah, you've got those extra legs coming out of you lately, right? And the wings are on their way, baby. All right, all right, cool, cool. Well, that is an excellent reason to want to watch this film. Uh, Josh, can you tell me a little bit about what you're expecting from this movie? Oh, well, knowing Cronenberg, I'm expecting some kind of very long opening sequence with lot with the credit sequence. His he has a th- he has a credit sequence thing. He likes to do highly stylized credit sequences where pretty much you get like the entire production staff. It's very classic filmmaking. That's really interesting because I I don't think I've noticed that. Oh yeah. I mean that was one of the things about Dead Ringers that's amazing is the opening is all of these medical uh medical drawings and medical texts. Well, now that you mention it, I remember Spider having mm-hmm. an incredibly long and to my mind, incredibly boring opening credit sequence, but it did, as you just described, Dead Ringers feature a lot of uh, images related to the film. Yeah, that the names, seemingly the name of everyone who worked on the film, came out over. So. Yeah, it's like, hey, I'm gonna put this all out front, and I'm gonna use this to set the tone. That's what the end credits are for, anyway. Uh, please, <laughs> go, please go on. Well, it's funny is that uh, Shivers actually opens up with a faux ad for the apartment complex the movie is gonna take in. I haven't seen that one. So. Oh, whoa. Well, maybe uh, that I won't spoil. No spoilers. Jesus. Yeah. Oof. Because I, I, I don't want to come across as if. I don't like David Cronenberg because I actually very much do. I just didn't care for Spider. It's a require. It's a re- it's a required taste. It's a refined taste for sure. I don't think I can understand not liking the movie Spider. For me, 
it checked off a lot of boxes. That's fine. That's fine. Josh, before you get into other predictions, I want to narrow down on some uh, specifics. Do you know who's in this movie? Yes. Who's in this? This is Jeff Goldblum. Okay. This is, I believe, one of the movies he made after Death Wish that put him on the map. (laughs) <laughs> he is in death wish he is regretfully and i hope that's something that if you ever bring up if you're if you're like ever having lunch with jeff goldblum bring up the movie death wish and see how he reacts and then write into the pod and let us know i'm sure whatever reaction he has it'll be charming and funny and fun now are we gonna do jeff goldblum impressions on this pod i haven't been i don't have one maybe i'll i'll have one in the second act after we've watched the movie but i'm not prepared i did not do my homework oh uh, g- gosh i don't i mean i don't know are we get oh boy i uh, no that's terrible <laughs> that was like that's fucking horrible i mean oh man it was uh, i was like yeah i guess that's jeff goldblum like, nope uh, i'll take another crack at it after we see the actual yeah film. yeah on this side you've got faith and on this side you've got science no and that's terrible <laughs> it's like brand like late stage brando all right um anyone else you know is in this movie i don't know beyond that i'm gonna take a stab in the dark and say um oh good gina davis mm-hmm. maybe um, i think that's wrong i think that's one of those like i shouldn't even throw it out there because i'm i'm pretty sure it's wrong maybe. um but david cronenberg's movies i at this point in his career i don't think he was drawing like he was really still uh making talent and not a director who could just kind of pick awesome talent and say, hey, I'm making a movie, please do it. So I well, don't expect, I expect outside of Jeff Goldblum to to not recognize a lot of this cast. That's fair. That's fair. Are there any specific images or anything you expect to see happen? I mean, my understanding, and, and I just think this is one of the, this movie is like, I think I've been, this movie is in the public uh consciousness yeah it's about a man who turns himself into a fly i don't now how do you think that happens through science well yeah i'm fairly science so let me get into this a little bit david cronenberg is often referred to as a famous body horror filmmaker that is what's associated with him and uh, so i'm sure that what we're going to get are some really bizarro practical sfx sequences of an actual Jeff Goldblum turning into a fly a la the thing or uh you know other other practical effects movies and this is not a bad one to watch in our canon because we do have this ongoing conversation about practical effects versus CGI and I think that Cronenberg one of the things is he's done very well throughout his career is uh one of the things about Dead Ringers that's so impressive is it's filled with amazing uh, trick camera shots and I won't explain why but f- it's almost seamless special effects work uh and it is the entire crux of the movie so i think with the fly there's movies prior to that where he's like shivers or rabid where it's done and it's a bit sloppy or it's a bit hokier so the fly might live somewhere in between the super slick dead ringers or the earlier gross out body horror stuff right right okay are there any quotes you associate with this film no no I've got nothing. No, no lines of dialogue or anything like that. I, I really don't know. I, I, I think this is a good one for me because I said, like, I believe it's in the cultural consciousness. And yet somehow I'm I have nothing. I have a bit of the plot. I have Jeff Goldblum and then and then blank. Well, you, you think Jeff Goldblum is going to turn into a fly 
Do you think he's going to be seeking to do that or, you know, seeking to do something else similar to that? I'll I'll take an educated guess from from Dead Ringers and say that uh, he is probably intentionally trying to do it, but he's not supposed to be. Hmm. Yeah, it's some kind of forbidden science. Yes. Mad science. It's like the type of thing that, like, I'm so good at science, I'm going to attempt this, but I don't think it should be attempted by someone else. Or I understand why I'm not supposed to be doing it. It's it's man, it's the Frankenstein playing God type of science. Totally. Examining. Totally. All right. Uh, by the way, what's your experience with this movie? Have you seen it? I have seen this movie once a while ago. But for most of this movie, uh, my memory of it is very poor. So this is going to be essentially, for all intents and purposes, a first watch through for most of it for me. However, I have this really weird thing with this film where I've seen the last, I don't know, three to four minutes of this movie like eight times. I don't know how this keeps happening, especially because I feel I feel like I keep turning on the TV and it's the end of the fly. And I don't even know how that keeps happening because not to spoil how one of your predictions works out, Josh, but some of the movie is a little a little gross for TV. So how they keep putting this movie on television without cutting it to pieces, I don't know. But I've seen the ending of this movie a ton. That's my recollection that it was on TV a lot, like on Saturday afternoons growing up. And I, yeah. think I, I think I never managed to, I think I was like, oh, what is this? Oh yeah, I think that's the fly and I would change the channel. Like, And this is a movie that I think is, is one that my dad told me about. My dad, I may have mentioned on the podcast before, is a puppeteer and had a lot of people in the art community. And I'm fairly certain that he worked with someone who did effects for this. Neat. And so I think that's why my dad was like, hey, there's this movie called The Fly. It's that's why I think I know the plot so well, because he had to explain what this person, how they helped craft whatever they helped craft for it. But well, you claim to know the plot pretty well. But all you've said so far is Jeff Goldblum turns himself into a fly. That's a move. That's a pitch. What do you mean? <laughs> like, I know the plot. For, that's the plot of a movie. Anyway, to the long way around to answering your question, um, my history with it is I don't remember it very well, except for the very, very end. Gotcha. So, all right. So last call. Any other predictions before we actually watch this movie? No, I'm just ready. Like, I'm I'm not I'm not trying to cut this section short. I just I'm like ready mentally to just sort of watch and enjoy this movie. You come in with any hype? Has any uh, anybody reacted to you saying you're going to watch this? Actually, this is something I've really been working hard to save. I have learned something about this podcast, which is not to tell anyone I'm doing it interesting in the past i've obviously been very excited to be on a podcast and to be watching these movies i haven't seen before so leading up to them i would say to people say what are you doing saturday i would give them the whole backstory and i found that on dune too many times i don't get a chance to say this is a movie i haven't seen before i don't know anything about and people just start throwing spoilers out or naming actors in it all things that are antithetical to what i believe is the spirit of this podcast antithetical antithetical to the spirit of this podcast which is to not know a lot going in and assess what you know and your expectations and then really re-examine those in the second half so right right i didn't tell a soul that i was watching this movie and as a result i know nothing but the one person i did tell was my was my girlfriend and she went 
you haven't seen the fly and i went that's it don't say anything else that's i don't want to know why you're using that tone i don't know what you thought of this movie and i said it's shocking that you have seen this movie because robin has not seen many like big iconic movies but apparently she has seen the fly i am excited to talk to her about it after i've viewed it well honestly it's it's not in itself the kind of movie where you'd think everyone has seen it. You know, it's it's not an Indiana Jones or a Back to the Future. But at the same time, because it was on TV so much, I think there's a large segment of the population that's at least passingly familiar with this yeah. movie or parts of it anyway. Yeah, it also it also does, you know, it's it does seem to be like. It definitely appears to be a modern day Frankenstein or a new generation's Frankenstein. So maybe that's a prediction on my end that will be proven wrong. But that's my impression of it is that for us, it is very much the Frankenstein movie for the, you know, 80s and 90s. Well, Josh, let's find out. Let's fly. Really? You want to go out on that? I'd rather go out on buzz. <laughs> I think you're making a mistake. I think you really want to talk to me. Sorry, I have three other interviews to do before this party's over. Yeah, but they're not working on something that'll change the world as we know it. They say they are. Yeah, but they're lying. There is a limit, even to the imagination. Human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. <laughs> creations meet our deepest fears something went wrong Seth when you went through something went wrong you are about to go beyond that limit those weird hairs that were growing out of your back I, I had them analyzed but they were definitely not human if you saw how scared and angry and desperate he is... I'm sure Typhoid Mary was a very nice person, too, when you saw her socially. No! You're afraid to be destroyed and recreated, aren't you? You're changing, Seth. Everything about you is changing. Oh, no. What's happening to me? Am I dying? I want to know what's going on. What does the disease want? It wants to turn me into something else. Oh, no. A fly got into the transmitter pod with me that first time when I was alone. Don't go back to it. Could be contagious. Uh, I'm afraid! Don't be afraid! No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Hey guys, we're Chuck and Brad. We're two comedians who do the Chuck and Brad podcast, a pop culture podcast based out of Rhode Island. We just wanted to let you know that we're going on a short comedy tour called Chuck and Brad Reimagine the Avengers. It's our own comedic retelling of the original Avengers movie, and we're touring the shows the same weekend that Avengers Endgame comes out. So come get a refresher and a new spin on the original Avengers movie before you go see Endgame. Thursday, April 25th, we'll be in Hartford, Connecticut at the CT Comedy Theater with B.J. Quagan. 
Andrew Morgan and Stosh Makita. Saturday, April 27th, will be in New York City at the Pit Loft with Impractical Jokers tour opener Jiggy, Impractical Jokers writer Casey Jost, and UCB veteran Lisa Kleinman. Sunday, April 28th, will be at Laugh Boston with John Tilson, Logan O'Brien, Tyler Swain, and Dan Hall. All event info and tickets at chuckandbradpodcast.com. Every night we'll have the comics open up the show and we'll close with our live retelling of The Avengers. And for a tiny bit of background, we've done the podcast for 10 years. We've had on great guests like Jeff Tremaine, the director of the Jackass movies, the bands Bowling for Soup, Less Than Jake, Real Big Fish, Big D and the Kids Table, and many, many more. And if you're a big podcast listener, you might know me from uh, Tell Em Steve Dave. I work on film projects for the podcast Tell Em Steve Dave, which is made up of uh, Walton Bryant from AMC's Comic Book Men and Quinn from True TV's Impractical Jokers. I consistently do the film work for the Tell Em Steve Dave Patreon. So come on out, support this very weird live comedy show, and hopefully more and more podcasts will start doing their own live alternative shows. Once again, that's Chuck and Brad Reimagine the Avengers, New York City, Hartford, and Boston. See you at the end of the month. ChuckandBradPodcast.com. And so that, Josh, was the fly. Buzz, buzz, baby. Buzz, buzz, indeed. What did you think, Josh? Dave, I liked this movie a lot. Cool. I uh, am really ready to get into what I liked about it and what I disliked about it, but the, the initial reaction is two thumbs up. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Two, two thumbs, not two mandibles up. Oh, Lord. Two wings up. And two thumbs with their fingernails on them up. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Shouldn't have ordered food. I will say that uh, watching these Cronenberg movies, I have seen the phrase body horror a lot, and a lot of the movies I've watched have like a gross element or something. But I see now that this is why people associate with him him with body horror. This movie is a terrifying. I mean. I don't know, arguably terrifying, but gross, gross, gross movie. Yep. About specifically as it pertains to bodies. Well, you also you haven't seen Videodrome. Uh no, I have not. Correct. Right. Correct. Oh, and also I wanna say, actually I feel bad for the listener because we're gonna talk about probably a lot of Cronenberg spoilers as they pertain to other movies. I know you warn about spoilers, but I just don't want someone who's listening to this who's like not ready to get deep on Cronenberg, and I'll try to keep myself in check. But we'll be we'll be talking all those all the movies a little bit. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second. But first, Josh, let me tell you about the background of this movie. So, The Fly is based on The Fly, a short story by George Langlan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I saw his name in the credits. I enjoyed it. Langland. Yeah. Uh, there's two A's in a row is why we're laughing and don't know how to say it. But um, he published that in the June 1957 issue of Playboy. I was going to say that sounds like a name like from the 50s, like George Langland here. Yeah. Well, it is. Um, the The story was adapted into a movie a year later in 1958. And then... They started wanting to adapt it again in the 80s, so they shopped it around a little bit, and ultimately, did you notice who produced this movie? No, I missed out. They ultimately landed on the the perfect producer for material of this kind, Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks produced this. Mel Brooks and Brooks Films produced this movie. Interesting. Yeah. That's a very significant departure from his other comedy movies. I know, but uh, he really believed in the project. Well, 
Josh, that brings us to David Cronenberg, the director you have been exploring in depth for the past little while. What do you think of the directing in this movie, sir? I, I so it was very Cronenbergy. I mean, and that's uh, not to th- toss off the question. It, uh, not just in the body horror element either. He has a certain way of shooting actors. Kind of, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. But there's this me- intimate level medium shot of people having uh, dialogue scenes that feels very Cronenberg. He doesn't like to show actors in frame together going back and forth. It's a lot of one one person's perspective of the conversation than the than the others. And and stilted and stilted conversations. It's it's like the actors are directed to be wooden, which I find uh is like a, a sort of stamp on a lot of his work. Like it opens with them at a at like a, uh, a soiree. Uh, I was going to say a soiree. I think it's supposed to be a museum opening or something. No, it's, it's some kind of like scientist get together. That's right. A, that's that, completely absurd because in the background of their conversation is like seven or eight people just on phone, like phones with like it's like a art installation where there are phones hanging down and they're all just talking i I have no idea what's supposed to be going on at this place well it's probably like they had the event at an art museum or a museum of some sort you know yeah okay so it's a it's a soiree for scientists yeah that's why she's there she works for a scientific journal does she because it's really unclear whether she's a freelancer or whether she works exclusively for them or what her real job i mean she says she's trailing three people She's a journalist for a science magazine of some kind, some science publication. Okay. And she's there to, you know, find at least three people as sort of that's her goal to maybe stumble on something, you know? Three scoops. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, I mean, so from that conversation, then you jump straight to the lab, you get to go to the lab and, and sort of you get a vibe for what this movie's going to be because that's when they, so it's, it, it, this is a nice one because- it's a seemingly normal, albeit slightly creepy, albeit a little sexy, this guy's trying to get with this girl, that's the plot. And then, uh, this I mean, it's not necessarily a backdoor, but then it's like, nope, major look, it's a sci-fi movie. Yeah. He's like, come to my, he says something charming like about his espresso machine and how he'll make her espresso if she comes to his lab. He calls it his lab. It's not a lab really at all. Well, it's <laughs> it's, it's a it's, big apartment. It's a some sort of weird warehouse loft that he has telepods in. And and like the great thing about Cronenberg is she's like, oh yeah, whatever. Those things are lame. She says like, what what are those designer phone booths? Well, I mean, y- you you walk into a person's apartment for the first time and you see something weird. Your mind doesn't immediately go towards some heretofore unimagined technological breakthrough right right well it's the 80s you think it's some designer bullshit art installation and it does it is i mean not as late it's supremely 80s and i mean the art the art direction this is what i think it's like it's clearly it doesn't seem like a big budget movie i think that the effects and i don't mean to get into a discussion of the the makeup effects but the effects of like the lab are okay like they're they're pretty decent like Cronenberg has a way of like kind of putting very real locations and then dropping just a few sci-fi elements into them uh sort of like existence where they're doing the game uh tryout in a church which is Mm. like so the game technology is clearly like sci-fi-esque but they're just in a basic 
uh, church or meeting hall or type of thing. Yeah, that's a cool point. Which is the case here. So I, I think Cronenberg's direction. I, I mean, I could, I can see. Uh, well, I can see why this would be a movie you wouldn't like, but I don't think the direction would be why. I think the the overall he does he just really it's a Cronenberg movie. I think and a really good one. Sure is. Um, just in case anyone is curious, uh, other films by David Cronenberg would include. Uh, yeah. Let me know if you've seen these. So, The Brood, no. Scanners, no. Videodrome, no. The Dead Zone. No, but I'm going to watch it because it's on Shudder, at least at the time of this recording. Dead Ringers, we know you've seen. Naked Lunch. Uh, he directed the movie Crash, not the Oscar-winning uh, movie about race relations in L.A., but rather the sexy car crash movie Crash. Yeah, which, I mean, the other Crash, you know, sucks, so... I never saw it. I um, haven't seen Cron- I haven't seen Cronenberg's, but boy, the Oscar-winning Crash is, in hindsight, a really regrettable movie. I've heard that, yeah. So... Anyone, if if you hear me talk about Crash, I'm talking about Cronenberg's Crash, which is about getting off on car accidents? I haven't seen it, but that appears to be what it's about, yes. It is a James Spader movie, so I'm sure there's about- Weird sex in yeah, it, yeah. And there's probably like 30 people in the universe that have seen it. That sounds about right. Finishing this out, Existence, you mentioned Spider, History of Violence, Eastern Promises, and much, much more- it behooves me, though, to also point out that he occasionally works as an actor, maybe just doing cameos, for me, most famously, in a little movie called Jason X, yeah, aka Jason in Space. I am aware of this. Hell yes. yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think. I feel like I saw Cronenberg in something else recently, too. Could be. Um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, he, this, this movie, this is like, like one of the, probably the top five you think of when you think of Cronenberg. Oh, right? absolutely. Yeah. Um, it established him as a real SF, like good SFX, uh, director. Yeah. And it was his most successful film. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Uh, also, here's a fun fact about him. I usually bring this up in reference to David Lynch, but David Cronenberg was also among the directors briefly considered for Return of the Jedi. And it's a real cry. It's a shame. It's a shame that he did not direct that movie. David Cronenberg's Return of the Jedi. It would Because he would have had Lucas looking over his shoulder being like, make sure all of this makes sense with the other two. And he'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then the aliens are my territory, right? And Jabba the Hutt yeah. would have been way grosser. Oh, grosser. And uh, I mean, there's... A real, it is latex and it is and it is slime and liquid, but it looks, it's that thing where it is obviously there and physically there. And yeah. you, so you're like, your mind is telling you that's fake, but your eye is telling you, yeah, but it's next to a human. And I think both of these things are happening and it's really disgusting. Yeah. 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 Well, anyway, um, so yeah, David Cronenberg is mostly associated with body horror, and I think this movie makes a strong case for why. Yes. I mean- Wait, I want to say one more thing. Cronenberg Ewoks. Yeah, what would those have been like? I, I'm not going to I'm not gonna pitch anything, but- What would they have gotten up to? <laughs> it would have been really like they're doing drugs. One shudders to think. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. sorry. Body horror, Cronenberg. Well, just that, you know- it, not all of his movies have that, as we've seen in some of the later work he's done, but 
those that do boy do they ever yeah i mean eastern promises and uh a history of violence specifically are more just like crime movies you know though i mean taking eastern promises for example when there's violence in that it's very the physical nature of it is very intense yeah and it's it's gross and bloody and yeah uh but the movie those movies don't have an alien or they don't have anything special they're human beings solving human problems right yeah well anyway uh he's a great director and he certainly has style i'll give him that one one thing about the style it is very dreamlike which which applies to this movie well like what do you mean like it's the type of movie that is it's it's fantastical so it is always sort of unclear what the reality is and he and he does this intentionally in this movie really deep in with a dream sequence that's fair i mean given the last third of this movie it does seem to unfold in this kind of feverish intense state for everybody you know yeah it's the type of thing where you you're you're always wondering if it's just gonna it's gonna cut to them waking up the day after the soiree and it's like oh he just drunkenly hooked up last night yeah i had the craziest dream about a fly (laughs) you kind of wish that happened right um well only if then a fly monster like ripped itself out of the bed or like jeff goldblum's face fell apart and he's like yeah that was a funny dream it actually happened Ah! Ah! josh you were correct jeff goldblum is in this movie Uh, yeah jeff jeff goldblum yeah you know uh, oh gosh I don't even uh, eat the sugar anymore. I uh, I consume it. I pull through my teeth, but I can't digest it. I... And you patented it, and you packaged it, and now you're selling it. You're selling it. Well, great. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I can't do a good Jeff Goldblum. I think that was fine. I think you. I think if maybe we watch some of these scenes a few times, we could. I mean, it's like he has a very Jeff Goldblumy way about him. I just I can't seem to get the get it get it right uh he's he's really excellent his uh performance is i'd say about him and uh also someone else who's in this movie sort of specifically they want they succeed in their roles and despite cronenberg's probably lackluster acting directing i I don't think he's a good director with actors i'll be clear about that oh interesting I, i think i like that i mean uh, or I, or maybe I'm wrong about that, but like, like oftentimes scenes play out very wooden, and the conversation is kind of stilted, and that to me sort of all plays in well into his aesthetic. At the same time, it's nice to see someone like Jeff Goldblum who has like rhythm and knows how to sort of hit the beats and like not deliver everything one note. Gina Davis. Ugh. All right. Well, you know what? So just uh, cut that. You, no, 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 not at all. You were correct, Josh. Gina Davis is in this movie, and maybe we should talk about them together, because really, this movie, there are other people in it, but for all intents and purposes, this is a two-hander. Yeah. So, let's talk about both of them at the same time. I do also want to call out one other actor that does a great job in this film, which is Jeff Goldblum's Rockin' Bod yes. in the first half of the movie. It's He's hot, dude. It's crazy. Jeff Goldblum is not a superhero. It's not like it's funny that it, now he's in the the Marvel universe now, right? Because no. of Thor Ragnarok. Oh, you're right. Yeah, he is. But like, I, I forgot cr- about that. I fi- I mean, I guess superhero movies weren't as big at the time. But like, you could see him doing this movie one year and then being Thor the next year because he's he's ridiculous, dude. Captain America, whoever he wants. I had he- to. I asked myself if he did his own stunts because 
And I, and I have to also question whether some of the things that we saw happen in this movie, a person could physically do. There's one scene where he's on uh, some kind of athletic bar and he's swinging all the way around it 360. Yeah, human beings can definitely do that. And then like kicking his feet on the ceiling, like sort of pushing himself off the ceiling. Well, I but I don't I think that may have been an effect, but still I bought it because Jeff Goldblum is in like killer shape. It's, yeah, it's really is nuts so uh, the thing the thing about this movie is i think they both do a very good job but what i kept noticing is gina davis's job in this movie is more or less to react to things Mm -hmm. and she is fantastic at it and she has this great face for reactions too it's just like she conveys so much just with her expressions yeah but it doesn't leave her with a ton to do and jeff goldblum for the last half of this movie is acting through like 25 pounds of makeup and latex. Yes. So, you know, most of their important acting comes in the very beginning. Well, that's pretty generic, like getting to know you stuff, you know? Well, true. But there was for me, I was impressed with how well he care. He continued to make you feel that character underneath that, like in underneath all the gop and goop. Like he really, I I and I thought actually thought Gina Davis's uh, character starts off kind of uh, some of the motivations are really weird or seemingly random, but then by the end of the movie, I, there's like a I felt a significant amount of empathy for this person who was still with this, still like I don't know with this weird scientist. Like she's like she's not, putting up with a lot. It's, yes, it's not like even a stand by your man thing, which I would probably judge. It's like she genuinely seems like she cannot. She feels responsible for this process and is gonna stick it out uh, up until the last moment when she, well, she she's got to make a serious choice. Spoilers. I think I think we'll save that for that meet for a little bit later in the yeah. podcast. We'll get there shortly. But uh, one other person I just want to talk about briefly is John Getz as Stathis. Now it's Stannis Baratheon, right? St- Stannis, because I was like, is it Stathis Baratheon? <laughs> it's Renly. Okay, and he's killed by a shadow. Uh, no, um, his name is Stathis. I don't know. It's an eighties name. He's got that eighties beard. It's just an 80s guy. But in in Game of Thrones, it's not Stathis. It is in Stannis. Game of Thrones. It is Stannis. Because yes. like, I wonder if that means George R. R. Martin is a big Cronenberg fan, and that's like his allusion, his little like wink to the fly. But oh Stathis, Stathis is just a strange, yeah, 80s Canadian name. Yeah. Would you name your child Stathis? Under no circumstances. What do you think the nickname is for someone named Stathis? Stats. Stathy. Statch. Athis. Is. Stuh. This is my boy Is. This is my boy Stath. We call him Stath. Sta. What's up, Stath Infection? <laughs> I don't know. That I I'm not to say there are weirder names out there in the universe, but Stathis. Sure, it's I don't know. Yeah, her name was like Victoria what like Quail Quop. Her name was Veronica Quaif. Quaif. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's also to ronnie did they i was gonna say did they ever actually call her veronica does anyone actually say her name yeah like maybe once or twice and his name is the creepy fly man well his name is seth brundle yes and ultimately brundle fly brundle fly had you ever heard that term before i think it actually does ring a bell 
Yeah, because that was one of when I asked you about quotes or terms, that's one of the ones that actually weirdly floats around from this movie. Maybe just because scenes or quotes are repeated often, and that's the one. I'm not me anymore. I'm I'm Brundlefly. 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 The other very famous quote from this movie that I wondered if you'd heard before is Be afraid. Be very afraid. When does he... He says that, right? Uh, She says it. Gina Davis says it when he's trying to get the floozy into the thing. Oh, yes. And he says, don't be afraid. And then Veronica's there and she says, no, be afraid. Be very afraid. Yes. That was actually the tagline for this movie as well on the poster and everything. I mean, it's a good tagline. It's a great tagline. It's one of the greatest taglines ever, frankly. Well, it's also a bit generic. Well... But this invented it. Yeah, but I'm saying you could, yes, but it's a great, because be, af- be afraid, be very afraid could apply to anything. Yeah, I know. But it, I mean, that's, it's uh, succumbing to its own success in a way. Yeah, I, but I'm, yes, so I, that's what I'm saying is why it's maybe so good. It, it's so open. I know, yes, you, you could slap it on any horror movie. Yes, know, which but... is why it is excellent. So, here we are. Let's talk about the plot of this movie. Oh, We've already yeah. mentioned the opening soiree. Yeah. But what I want to talk about is the fact that Jeff Goldblum is hitting on Gina Davis at the beginning of this movie and says, let's go back to my place. Mm-hmm. He's been acting weird already because he's just a weird guy. We know that because we know Jeff Goldblum, but she doesn't. But she agrees to go back to his place. And they pull up to this abandoned factory in the middle of nowhere. Yep. It's like, it is clearly a murder house. It seemed like it reminded me of in in Frankenstein, like, it might as well have been thunder and lightning and also pouring rain, and, like, they had to park at a gate at the bottom, and, like, I just, I I think that was intentionally supposed to be creepy and foreboding. Sure, that makes sense. That's a, that's a that's a cool observation, but, actually. But, but in real life, what the fuck, Gina Davis? Dude, that was the first sign of this. Run is, away. He. It's but, not a lab. It is not a lab. Well, here. So it's a. He lives in this converted loft space, which actually nowadays, if you were to take that apartment and put it in New York City or talking about Canada in Toronto in any big city, that place would be worth so much fucking money it's that it's huge it's one of these gigantic you know it's got that like sideways rolly doors it's like hansel's fucking apartment from zoolander it's absolutely massive and ironically he sleeps on a pull-out sofa bed because i don't know he didn't have the space to make up a bedroom no he's a poor scientist josh he's he is uh, is he poor? he's a but poor scientist so much space hardwood floors lots of natural light exposed brick yeah it was beautiful cool roll top like cool rolling door yeah the the, i love those cool rolling doors i i would live there in a heartbeat if i could i mean it did seem a bit uh dark and no lots of natural light lonely (laughs) and it is a place that slowly became his own personal hell but that's not his fault that's the fly's fault Uh, yeah and it's certainly not the realtor's fault uh, so he is like gonna. He's gonna show her the fly machine. He, it's not. It's not the, the fly, teleporter. Josh. The teleporter. It's not supposed to be a fly machine. He has two pods, and he has a reject prototype pod. And if she's just like, whatever, bro. Oh, I'm gonna. She sort of make, like indicates she's gonna leave. Right now, can, the pods themselves. So 
it's, uh, Jeff Goldblum is an inventor who has invented a teleportation machine. He has one pod. You go in, hit the button. It zaps you to the other pod. You come out. Uh, had you did you recognize the design of these pods at all? Not no, not really. But not really? I, I mean, I've seen culturally. Like I worked on a a play that had sort of similar design transportation things. Uh-huh. And I so, just feel like they're a very recognizable element from this movie. Yeah, I mean, I I, I get yes. I I think I th- I've definitely seen an image of this movie of a Jeff Goldblum crouched in one of them. Yeah, well, I think that's maybe the most famous shot from this is the him. Uh, <laughs> in the nude coming out of the pod like the door opening and all the smoke and him rising out of the pod i think is it's a gorgeous shot too yeah well uh even though some of sometimes the the actual science pieces look cheesy it's shot really well so your mind doesn't focus on it too much well i i genuinely think those pods are a really nice piece of design and weirdly enough there's something kind of flyish about them yeah they're like little larva eggs yeah yeah for sure before we go on i want to circle back to a couple quick notes about the very beginning of this movie one uh the music when it comes in very intense and striking to start howard shore joint howard shore's score is amazing fantastic i wrote down his name at the top when it came up on the credits and he is he his uh his soundtrack to this really by the end i was thinking like the music for this is almost like too good yes you know it's like there's an element even though we've been praising the movie, generally speaking, there's an element to which this is sort of a schlocky B-movie. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's one thing about the Cronenberg experience is there are select films that are shot in really, really high film quality, but many of them, the quality is like, you're like... It, it, well, it, and also the subject matter and what yeah. happens and everything. But Howard Shore's score, it's like, you know, you've got some Oscar bait biopic score for this thing. It's so good. I, at the end, the credits credit the it was played by the London Philharmonic. Ugh, it sounded like it. And then lastly, I just want to throw out. We mentioned already that this was made. It takes place in the 80s. Both Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum have the biggest fucking hair in this movie there's a there was a moment where i was like if they were side by side facing away from the camera i'm not sure i'm not sure i could have picked them apart except for jeff goldblum's like rip he had you know his back i was like yeah i guess yeah all right well so sorry for interrupting please go on so there he's flirting with her in front of his pods and she's like dude your little pod things this isn't happening so there's a moment where he is like, come on, give these pods a chance, and things get a little sexy. Yeah, well, you know, if you've invented telepods, Josh, the first thing in your mind is, how am I going to get laid with these things, right? Yeah, that's really the purpose. They're going to, quote, change the world as it pertains to your bedroom. hey So she, he, you know, convinces her essentially by actually pushing the flirting. He's like, give me something personal of yours. And she very sexily decides to take her stocking off and hand it to him. And, you know, he throws it in a, tele- a telepod. He, we don't re- really know what they are at this time. At point. He's like, yeah, well, neither does Gina Davis. And yet I can't help but feel like the name telepod is quite suggestive as to what they do. Yeah, true. But I, I was still like, what is going to happen here? Okay. <laughs> I suppose I should have seen. Yes, this coming. Uh, so. He basically blasts the ho the the stocking uh from one pond to the other, and she is impressed. Well, wouldn't you be Jesus? And it, it, he they sort of indicate that 
it's not even that he's transporting it. It's that he's destroying the original and then a computer is replicating it. Well, okay, I was going to save this for later, but this is a good moment to get into it. That brings in a kind of philosophical question about teleportation and transportation. Like, a similar idea is the transporter on Star Trek, where when you get beamed somewhere, they basically break you apart and then put you back together somewhere else. And that raises the question... Even if the part of you that comes out the other side looks like you, talks and sounds like you, has all the same memories, is it really you? Because there is the question of you go into the pod, you get broken apart, you die, and then whatever comes out the other side is exactly the same, but it's basically a clone with the same memories. Yes, which is a very significant plot point of one of our favorite movies the prestige. the prestige yeah which i couldn't help but think of during during this one right well the prestige at least makes it more clear because there's not just one but two afterwards so there's a very clearly defined original and then clone yes even though you don't know which one is which that, yes. that is ultimately the case in this one though You're never really sure, and you could never really be sure until you get in the pod and do it. Either you come out the other side or everything goes black and a clone comes out the other side. It just – like the thing I said about George R.R. Martin, which was more jokingly, I did wonder if Nolan has like a Cronenberg influence because it was like the the idea of the transported man, the shape of the thing that Tesla builds him, uh, like the amount of like cables and things hooked up to it, not necessarily saying that it was lifted from the fly, but like – thematically similar and and not in, in a way that i feel is like that's someone who's like say not wearing their influence on their sleeve but actually was genuinely thought this was cool and wanted to do something with the, like similar uh in their career well the prestige is based on its own sort of original subject matter there's a book or short story or something like that ah. but maybe the uh, the visual element certainly could yeah. have brought that in anyway so he puts the pantyhose through uh it works great what did you think though the fact so he laments the fact it's it's only good for inanimate objects, and I get that he wants it to be for people, and that'll revolutionize travel, but even if it can only do non-living things, could you imagine the revolution that that would be in the world? Like, you would never have to ship anything ever again. No, you could- Amazon Prime could be instantaneous. I could order a car from Japan, and it could show up in my fucking living room a second later. Yeah, there's a huge, No effort. It's a huge- well, that's why he freaks out because she he, that it's at this point of the movie where she's like, oh, wow, this is going to be great for my story, which is hilarious because like she has a tape recorder in her pocket that awkwardly ends. And it, because it's the 80s, she has to open it up and flip the tape over to continue recording their conversation. And for the first time, he realizes she's he's the lead in her story. Yeah. And he freaks out because he's like, I'll use these things to get laid, but not to go public quite yet. Yeah, because his because his weird focus is on it doing bio uh, transportation, which is really the less necessary. Like, yes, it would be great to move humans back and forth like that. But do we really need that? No. Well, I see. Re- well, number one, he gets car sick. So that's probably what inspired oh, him to do it. I'm an idiot. I didn't put that together. Which he was like, you won't have to be car sick anymore. I was like, because he'll be really rich and he'll never have to do anything. Well, it's because he, uh, he gets motion sickness. So that's probably what inspired him. But like, you know, the, I mean, the utility of, be able, of being able to transport people is enormous. 
you know, but I, I, you know, that being said, I think he's underrating the value of being able to transport everything else. Yeah, it's you know? like, oh man, how did your invention work out? Oh, it sucks. I can only turn things into gold. I was trying to make diamonds. I know. So she goes home and her editor is taking a shower in her fucking apartment. Yeah, it's really creepy. I, I was, all right, so it turns out they're exes and he still had the key, but- at first, I was just like, holy shit. But then I go back to being like, holy shit, because she says, give me my key back. And he says, no. It's really bizarre. Dude, he's a total creep to her throughout the entire movie. And it did make me think like, oh, in the 80s, he's a real creep to her. And it's not. It's like, I was like, wow, I do feel bad for women. They have had yeah. to really, really struggle. Well, no, just you get be- that. She takes it from both sides. Like, Jeff Goldblum's a dick to her at a bunch of points throughout this movie, too. They both essentially are constantly harassing her, and she has to be like, <sighs> like, he, you boys. The Her editor later in the movie is, like, berating her in a store, and Cronenberg keeps panning the shots of men who are like, Oh, this is going on. I better look the other way. Well, at least at that point in the movie, though, his behavior is being portrayed as inappropriate and ridiculous. And, you know, she is rightly having a negative reaction to it. But at other points in the movie, he is clearly crossing boundaries in terms of their professional relationship that. Go, it, it goes relatively uncommented on. It's just like, yep, that's just what being a lady in journalism is like back then. But there is an interesting shift because uh, he that that is all very true. And but and she falls into Jeff Goldblum's arms. So so the next act of the movie is she goes back to Jeff Goldblum and they work on the machine more. And Brundle thinks he comes up with a discovery he realizes what was off and he successfully transports a baboon oh yeah that poor baboon and she is i don't i believe that oh yes what what it is is that in the scene prior to that uh she's gone back to talk to him more about the machine and she's been working for him a little bit and they have sex jeff goldblum is seemingly a nice guy up to this point in the movie sure he and the editor almost switch personalities as the movie goes on. He becomes more withdrawn and erratic and creepy, and the editor becomes more of like a kind of good guy looking person. He is more helpful to her as the movie goes on, yes. I'm so, so I'm just, I'm, again, I don't know. I still stand by my comment that it was like crazy to think that this was just the day to day existence of someone, but also I wonder if some of that is intentional. Like he's cartoonishly evil. Like, uh, the editor's cartoonishly evil to sort of foreshadow what's going to happen with Jeff Goldblum. The alternative is just that he's being a little what we consider creepy, but it's so normal that she still feels comfortable using him as, you know, the person that she runs to later on. Yeah. Which is sad in its own way. Well, he certainly doesn't get out of this without some recompense for his asshole behavior. Oh, he suffers. We'll get to that. I want to I want to throw out to you just quickly about your predictions and this is sorry, doubling back again, but you predicted there would be a really long opening credit sequence, so those highly stylized, not the case in this one. Not as much. I mean, there was some design to it but it was like it was actually i will say in general this is the most time efficient cronenberg movie i've seen out of the bunch yeah it's it's a swift film it was uh 94 minutes all right so 
we mentioned he turns a baboon inside out and it's really sad. Then uh, they sleep together. And afterwards we discover that he does the thing where he has five versions of the same outfit. So he doesn't have to think about what he wears every day. Yeah. But it's including the shoes. Yes. You don't need five pairs of the same shoes. Or five. I mean, five blazers is a bit much as well. Yeah. He really needs like two blazers and five white shirts. The shoes were, I liked, I liked, but it was kind of cool. That was like a nice design touch that it was literally f- five pairs of shoes. Sure, sure. Um, so they're talking in postcoital bliss and he realizes that the reason why he can't do living things is because he's good with, uh, you know, inanimate objects, but he just hasn't cracked the flesh. He says the flesh a lot. Yes, he does. And I, I have to say, so I'm an insane person and there's existing somewhere uh, a list of words that i despise and flesh is on it i was worried you're gonna make us turn off the movie honestly i i came close to leaving the room i want to dwell on this for a second so you're you hear certain words and your stomach turns or like what is the issue there? my skin crawls i mean it's a it i guess it varies depending on the word but like i think it's an aspect of uh do you, uh, do you know the term misophonia Okay, no, I'm not familiar with that. It's not like an officially diagnosed like psychological condition, but it's yeah. uh, something that's been observed in a minority of people. And what it is is that there are certain sounds that make a person react irrationally. Okay. So, and it's different for different people. Like some people can't stand chewing, right? Oh. Hearing. I also experience this. If I hear a person chewing with their mouth open or too loudly, it makes me disgusted and sick and insanely angry kind of irrationally like my reaction is much larger than the behavior deserves is that why you stopped eating the pizza halfway through the movie was no, i stopped eating the pizza because we were halfway through this movie <laughs> well, I just, also it was really bad pizza wanted i want to make sure it wasn't because of my eating habits no it wasn't you it was jeff goldblum's fucking fingernails falling out yeah that was bad timing for the food to show up and the food was fucking awful anyway so I get that for chewing. There are a couple other sounds I hate, and there are also certain words. So, like, flesh is one of them. I hate hearing that word. And there, there are others, and I've, I've taken to writing them down once I've identified them. Long story short, they say flesh about 25,000 times in this movie, and it made me a little insane. They do get away. They do stop saying it at a certain point. Yeah, but then it comes back later. <laughs> they, say it quite, they say it quite a, a lot. Uh yeah, that's an interesting quirk. I don't think I can uh, have words similar to that. I think I, there are some phrases. I think what I have is uh, phrases and idioms that drive me crazy, but I've never identified like single words. There are some. There are phrases on the list as well. Anyway, so <laughs> after having sex with Gina Davis, though, he's realized what he's been missing about the flesh. He's. It's and, really uh, dumb. He. It's really, really dumb. Well, the secret ingredient was love, Josh. Yeah, it's like. Uh, I think it's one of the lamer parts of the movie, but I will say the the shot of the the the, the SFX of the poor poor baboon that goes through the teleporters unsuccessfully is awesome it's i just was i was like yes thank do you mean you. like the inside out results yes the inside out was just so well done Ugh. i was like it's so awesome 
Well, ultimately, he tries again with a second baboon, and it works this time. Oh, thank God, because it was, like, really, I mean, it's quite upsetting the first time. And it's such a cute, cuddly baboon. Yeah. Like, when it comes jumping out into his arms yes. afterwards, it's so adorable. Yeah, it runs out of the teleporter, leaps up into his arms, and he hugs it like a teddy bear. It's it's really adorable. Ugh, that must have been a fun day on set. I, I It does raise a question in my mind, though, where is he getting these baboons? Uh, and me too, and also... Where are they living inside of this loft? Now, they later show uh, a, a side of the loft that sort of indicates there's, like, animal cages. Which we're supposed to assume that these are where the baboons live. But there was a moment where I was like, where is he getting these fucking baboons? Dude, it was a zoo-level creature. You know, unless you're living in the world of Hellraiser, you can't just go down to a pet store and get a monkey. Also, if you are going to be transporting matter, maybe start with like a, a mouse or a rat why small why do you work all the way up to a baboon he did do a steak first he did no, well yeah but but in between in between the failure and the success it's true he does go straight to baboon so he decides to go through himself and he goes through but a fly gets into the pod and he teleports from one pod to another with a fly in there with him yeah, well, I'd like to just clarify that Stathis does something ultimately creepy, which is slide a magazine cover under the door, basically saying he's going to expose the teleporter. Uh, Brundle's like, ah, he's talking to the baboon, and he's like, yeah, she used to date him. That's terrible. I'm very upset about it. And he's taking shots of what you're, I guess it's supposed to be whiskey, but it's a champagne bottle. And then he's like, He's talking to the baboon about how he's so sorry about what happened to its mate. And then he goes, I wouldn't have sent you to battle if I wasn't willing to go there myself. And he's like, you know what? Let's just drunkenly teleport. I'm ready. Yeah, it's the dangers of uh, drunken transportation. And a little fly gets in, in there with pod, him. Yeah. He says, I'm hitching a ride on this teleporter because I'm too lazy to fly from this side of the room to that side of the room. And, you know, flying is all they really do. It's in the name. Do you think that, you know, he would have been smart enough to put some kind of failsafe in that, like, the pod wouldn't activate if there's more than one DNA detected or something like that? I guess he wasn't thinking about it. You know, like he said, his mind doesn't tend to cover all the bases when it comes to the flesh. Well, we learn much later that it can combine basically anything with anything. So it feels like a pretty, something he should have put a safeguard in for, but okay. Yeah, probably. And also, ugh. well, anyway, long story short, when I was watching the scene, what I kept thinking of was who was in charge of wrangling the fly. <laughs> yeah. Like they, this fly, it's a huge fly and, and it's like zipping around the baboon's head. It's near Jeff Goldblum. And then it like goes into the fucking pod with him. And I'm like, you can't train a fly, so, like, how were they, did, were they just shooting the scenes over and over and over again, releasing a fly into the air and hoping it went close enough to I'm get the shot? I'm sure some of it is movie magic. They may have done something like put uh, something attractive to the fly on the chair to keep it, you know, in the swirling around the same vicinity. But I don't know how they got it to land on the plexiglass side of the transporter. Like, I mean, there's, yeah, maybe there's... It must have just been really time-consuming. Yeah. I do know maybe this is something that they did. So if you capture a fly and if you put it in a freezer, when flies get cold like that, they basically go into cryogenic freeze. They're not dead, but they're frozen. 
and when they warm back up they just sort of like shake themselves off and then fly away again yeah this is how like sometimes magicians will be like oh hey look there's a dead fly in the street let me revive it and show you how powerful i am with magic it's it was a frozen fly and just like from their hands the fly warms up and then flies away that's a classic magic trick i've seen david blaine do it anyway (laughs) but um god damn david blaine i like david blaine but that that, that's a side thing but another thing you can do is you can take a piece of dental floss and you can tie it around the fly's leg and then you when it warms up you have a little fly and a leash have you done this no it sounds disgusting but uh it's something that i read you can do we should try it sometime you can try it could try getting a whole we can become the captains of the industry of the pet fly you know we could get enough flies all looped together and then actually have enough flies that they fly us through the air oh like mary poppins only disgusting yeah (laughs) (laughs) except they were like flying towards piles of human like feces like they take you to the dump You're like, yes, I'm flying. I'm finally, finally flying. Where are you taking me? Oh, no. Piles Uh. of trash. So you're never getting out of that landfill if that happens. Uh, I, I, yeah. So the fly trainer, I mean, who knows? Uh, So he jumps. He jumps from pod to pod and we get that great famous Ooh. awesome shot of him rising naked out of the pod and like it's great like paul f tompkins <laughs> excuse me he jumps from pod to pod like paul f tompkins oh my god uh could sorry you, could you leave i wanted to get that out i thought that was quite enjoyable right. for me so here's a question i have did you see what happens to the fly afterwards uh no i i was i thought like does it turn into a tiny human? No, I think is yeah. there like a parallel movie going on? No, no. From the fly's no. perspective called The no. Human, no. where it goes back to its fly wife and she's like, "What's wrong with your face?" and he's like slowly growing teeth and fingernails I, and like he turns into a human. I eat meat now. I don't need shit. It's so disgusting. Um no, David, what happens is he has the fly inside of him in his genes he and the fly have been genetically bonded now you might ask why doesn't this happen instantaneously because it's a movie and movies need tension true so they allude to this you don't know immediately immediately he seems perfectly fine he seems better than fine he's doing all this showing off his agility he's doing all this you know muscle man stuff he's way stronger he's energetic he's horny are flies horny uh i don't know but apparently they love sugar because yeah that's true you know the first thing that happens is uh they're fooling around and you notice that this uh wound he has on his back which is from a, (laughs) a computer chip he landed on the last time they were fooling around it's got little hairs growing out of it and you're like hmm that's not normal. No, it's not. This is a, a point, Josh, where I want to point out. Your prediction was that a man would turn himself into a fly. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I thought that was the point of the movie. But you also predicted that it would be on purpose. Yeah, well, I mean, it was kind of the vibe where he was doing something he shouldn't have been. He was testing the limits of science, and uh, he was purposely trying to go through the machine, but I... I, I yeah, I definitely is, is not what I predicted in the sense that he's trying to transport himself. He's not trying to alter his DNA. 
so at first he's thinking that he's been improved like this is a really good thing right he, he talks like i've i've uh, really refreshed myself i've gone back to better than before yeah he's sort of acting like he's a god now yeah well to a certain extent he is right because he's super strong and super agile okay and he doesn't realize how fucked up his face is getting well that's the thing is like almost immediately boils spread out on his face and you're like it's a little it's a little premature to say everything went okay yeah but he feels great and maybe he's just he hasn't looked in a mirror yet but uh he starts freaking gina davis out so he goes out to a bar by putting by putting sugar like literally a cup a coffee cup full of sugar into a coffee he's drinking yeah you take any coffee with your sugar but um well he's also a dick to her she like questions him for a second and he's like well fuck you then gina davis because she just gets abused by everyone he's trying he tries to force her to do the transport the transport herself right and she wisely declines but he goes to a bar and he picks up a floozy by winning an arm wrestling match yeah now is there something about arm wrestling before 1984 five or 90 that it was like really a thing that people regularly did josh i want you to listen to me women find arm wrestlers irresistible okay i know this for a fact but it i've never walked into a bar and seen arm wrestling taking place it's because america has become pussified by liberal hollywood whoa oh damn okay charlie kirk so he's trying to pick up this girl. The arm wrestler dude's like, stay away from her. And he's like, tell you what, I beat you in arm wrestling and yeah. I take her home. And, and she's she, like, do I have any agency in this? Yeah, and they're like, absolutely not. She goes, what am I, a hooker? And he's like. He doesn't answer. He just no, kind of like rolls his eyes. He's like, no. yeah. He's like, you're the bait, baby. So they, he sits down to arm wrestle this guy. And you can tell it's not going to be a normal arm wrestling match. Nor is it. There's a lot of squeezing. There's weirdly fluids are kind of like coming yeah, out of Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, he starts secreting something. And the guy's arm bone snaps in half. And, and comes out. And technically, Goldblum never gets his arm down. <laughs> I mean, I also thought to myself, how strong is this motherfucker that he hasn't lost yet? True, true. You know, he's he's fighting basically Flyman. And he's holding up pretty good. Yeah, until his arm breaks in half. So then people are people are aghast and horrified, as they should be, except he, for the floozy. He just runs out the door with her, and then they're ga- they're there's like kind of like skipping down the street, and she's like, "Hey, that was some good stuff you did back there." Women find arm wrestling irresistible. Josh, he suggests they go back to the lab again, and well, she says. Maybe after a couple of bars, and he says, "Okay, fine, <laughs> right." But I also I want so first of all, he gets her out of the bar by doing this horrifically bloody, horrible thing to the guy she was, I guess, with prior to this. That's what we're supposed to take. Yeah. Then they leave together, and she's like, "What are you, a bodybuilder or something?" And he says, "Yeah, a bodybuilder. I take bodies apart and I put them together again." <laughs> I love that. That's and good I'm writing. Like, okay. <laughs> she clearly isn't listening because he just said one of the most terrifying things I think I've ever heard. And then he takes her back to what we have already established is his murder hole where he lives. I'd love to see a side montage of like all the bars they go to and like all the activities that happen. Like they're doing shots, but then he's like, I don't know, 
with like killing people at the same time. Some some it must have been a weird night out for the two of them. It really must have been. And I just long story short, I do not understand how these women keep going back to Jeff Goldblum's house. Like you were asking to be killed. I think we said at the start of this podcast, he's like Jeff Goldblum. He's peak Jeff Goldblum form. I mean, he's not not by the time he's with the floozy. He's half fly already. He's got boils. He's got the boils. He's got the hairs. It is dark and she's drunk. Maybe is, yeah. is what's going on. So. I think we're just supposed to be uh we're supposed to just suspend disbelief all right all right right, fine but what i what i do i do agree with you and i also agree that it's a bit insane that like he is kind of losing his shit all over the apartment and she's just like sitting there disrobed like not wearing any clothes and it's very bizarre yeah well he does the teleport in front of her and then and then she's like oh yeah let's go get breakfast well she's seen weirder what could be weirder than Oh, okay, sure. But you've never spent a morning at Jimmy's house. So then we get to a point, we get to this point where he's trying to force her to uh, do the teleportation. Right. And this is where we get Gina Davis's uh, Be Afraid, Be Very Afraid. She swoops in and saves the day. Yeah. Then he fights with her a little bit. And then she is like, look at your face and yeah. leaves. He looks at his face and he he pulls a fucking tooth out. Uh, yeah. No, no, I think this is when the finger, the fingernails. Well, those two, but I'm just okay. saying, like, I, 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 you know, we've talked about words I don't like and sounds I don't like. Here's another thing. Shit with teeth. I cannot deal with things going wrong with people's teeth. It's too upset. I'm one of those people who okay. has nightmares about losing, tooth. Yeah. yeah, losing teeth or broken teeth. Like, I Interesting. just, I can't handle that shit. Well, I think, though, this is this when she says to him. I've had the the hairs from your back analyzed, and the DNA is not human. Rutro. So he is finally like, you know, something might be happening to me. <laughs> I don't. I hadn't really given it a lot of thought, but maybe, maybe I should. <laughs> maybe this didn't work out the way I planned. Yeah. And this enters an interesting phase of the movie where he knows he's transmogrifying, and he goes back to being a scientist, and he decides to find out why. Right. And I would also say that this hits a point in the movie where things start happening a lot faster, like the film's been moving at a pretty regular pace so yeah. far, but at this point, the, both the transformation and the pacing of the movie really start to pick up speed. He goes from being like Jeff Goldblum with some boils on his face for 35 minutes of it to being like, kind of looking like the thing... Well, but that's because four weeks go by. He calls Gina Davis on the phone, and he's like, hey, can you come over? And he's it's been four weeks. Like, you would think that once he's scienced out the fact that he spliced himself with a fly by accident, he would tell her to get back there right away to get someone back to help you. Jesus. But he's interested. He's he's lost his mind, and he's, he's like, studying his progression. Like, he's... Mm. That's, that's what I think... So this is one thing about this versus compared to Dead Ringers, where Cronenberg explores a lot of the territory that, like, in, the, in both movies, where... They're also a bit about it, like very smart people being addicted and being uh, too focused on and on... the impact that might have on your mental faculties. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like in in Dead Ringers, this guy's got an addiction he's dealing with, but he's like so convinced he can take care of it. it he actually does things get worse for him. Right. And right. same thing here where Goldblum is like, I'm going to 
Well, the fly is taking over, and the fly is taking over. Yeah, and uh, this then we get we get to the series of scenes where it's just like her going back and forth from the lab, and the worse and worse reveals of of how he's doing. Yeah. Okay, so you predicted, Josh, that this movie would have some really bizarro practical effects of Jeff Goldblum turning into a fly. Yes. How do you feel like that prediction turned out? I fucking nailed it. But what I didn't nail was also this. This would include him walking on the walls and the ceiling of a, pl- a place and it's so well done yeah it's so amazing that is an incredible scene just from a technical perspective just like the wall crawling he does and this is like way before spider-man or yes. anything like that it looks so good i can tell you why i think i think i can tell you why tell me in the credits there's listed a yeah. rotating set designer yeah so i was like how are they doing this because it's it's i, I mean really till that moment i thought like Maybe they had a set that they could they could uh they could have it one way for one shot and then they'd clear it and flip it so that like the ceiling was the floor. But I didn't expect it to be something that they could literally rotate in real time during the scene, and that's but that's must be how they pulled it off. The exact same thing happened to me. I was like, "This is amazing how it looks with Jeff Goldblum." You know, because he's turning into a fly, he gets the sticky hands and sticky feet, so he's wa- he's crawling up and down onto the ceiling, onto the wall, onto the floor, perfectly seamless. It looks amazing. Yeah, and um. I was like, how did they do this? And I saw in the credits the rotating set designer. That has to be it. Yeah. Well, I Googled it while we were just uh, setting up here for part two, and that is exactly how they did it. And what's more that I found very interesting is that, so this isn't the first or the last movie to employ a rotating set for whatever purpose. Okay. But what typically happens in these uh, in these sets where they're doing this is that they try to keep the furniture and the design of the room very sparse because as you can imagine once you start rotating the set everything has to be nailed down so it doesn't fall everywhere as the set moves but in this movie by the time you get to this scene jeff goldblum has been destroying his apartment for a while there's like trash everywhere he's been wrecking his furniture everything it's supposed to be filthy and covered in crap so they just had to take all this crap and nail all of it down yes so that when they flipped the set none of this shit started falling on the floor which i think so much work i was so worth it it looked great there's like a fridge i mean there's things they really had to to bolt down well and just you know like you know wrappers for things you know like so much stuff uh no that that's a fantastic i mean so there's this is a campy movie i would be like it's campy it's campy to a certain extent because we have the lens of over 30 years we're watching it 30 years in the future I expect this movie would get remade because of the name brand recognition, the fact that it has already been, it was a 50s movie or, or whatever. Or, yeah, this is a remake um, already. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised like if there's another fly coming, but this one's saving grace is the performances and the practical effects. I mean, they, they make what could have been a train wreck. Like this could easily have been as bad as Dune. This could have been this could easily have been an unwatchable, unforgettable, unsuccessful movie. And it's touches like the rotating set, but also Jeff Goldblum's athleticism around it and Gina Davis's genuine horror at what she is experiencing that all blend together to like bring this one home, which is which is like this. I wrote I know you took note of it. You said something out loud and I like was in the process of writing down like this moment sort of like captures a lot. Yeah. Keep in mind, too, that this easily could have been the way Spider-Man turned out. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like it doesn't, you know, they both wind up getting powers related to the uh, yeah. creature that they've been sliced sure, with. Sure. Well, but it works out way worse is, for one of them. Isn't there a thing where that happens in Spider-Man? Yeah, the uh, neogenic nightmare. Yeah, so where he actually uh, turns into a spider. Yeah, and it is and it is scary. Yes, and I wasn't really clear what what the fuck was going to happen. Right. This is a good thing too. So we're getting to the we're getting to the climax. Right. Well, so we still have to talk about the freaking preg the pregnancy. So Gina Davis discovers that she is pregnant with uh, Brundle's baby, and she can't be sure if it's uh, pre fly Brundle or post-fly Brundle, and she doesn't want this potentially horrifying creature gestating inside of her, and so she wants an abortion. I think it's pretty noteworthy. I, I mean, honestly, even though it's been legal for so long, you just don't see a lot of abortions in films anymore. No. Like, e- even if, like, even mentioning them, it's usually handled in this very dainty you know careful way and then it's never portrayed like you know at the most you see like someone walks towards a building and then comes out like this actually shows you yeah like in the room you know it really wouldn't surprise me if some fucking project veritas like like if they lifted the scene from the fly and were like we snuck into a liberal abortion clinic and you're like wait a minute that's david cronenberg's the fly well it would go against their message because if you have a maggot growing in you you want to get it out i i think the idea is that uh yeah i guess though that it's a horrific pro like it's especially troubling what happens in this what turns out to be a dream sequence right but in the dream sequence uh uh, uh gina davis is actually in the room having the abortion and when they reveal that what was inside of her was some kind of hor- huge larva and it's it's quite shocking it's really messed up it's shocking to, it's shocking to start and then it gets even and then it gets gross shocking yeah uh but fortunately it's a dream sequence and she wakes up which led me to start thinking wait is she pregnant at all but she is but she is and so she still has this problem like this is still yeah. a possibility that she has to deal with and so uh she attempts to get an abortion and uh Brundle ain't having it no Brundle does the classic movie thing where he witnesses a conversation on a street from a turret yeah, but he has those fly uh, senses, <laughs> yes. you know, he can hear it really well, and even though his ears fell off by this point or just chilling in his fucking medicine cabinet. Yeah, I mean, he's not only losing his mind, but he's like, also, yeah, he's like saving. He's still trying to be a scientist the whole way. Well, also, that small piece of him that is still human is like, I am going to die very soon yeah. or at least not be me anymore. This is the last opera. Like having this child with her, if it's really a human child, will be the last chance for me to you know have any yes. sort of human continuation so yes. he's he cares a lot about it well except <laughs> then he goes full-on villain well but then the fly takes over right and the fly takes over because he you know there's the part of him that realizes this is happening and he does try to warn her away he says i you know in a, in one of his last moments of true lucidity he says i can't be sure i won't hurt you yeah. or something like that he, he he recognizes that he's a danger and tries to get her away but it's yes. too late no he warns her to stay away no. yes but it's not well time. no and then she exits and then he overhears the conversation so. right right so so he attacks her at the board the abortion clinic and he jumps through that glass window um, well, we should also say this. It's not like abortion clinic is a phrase that conjures up something. It's just a fucking doctor's office. Like, I mean, I'm not sure. Tr- I guess not trying to get political here. I'm just trying to say, like, she goes to like a pretty fancy doctor's office and he's just like, 
All right, go into the next room. Well, there is, I mean, uh, again, it's not just the fact that abortion is portrayed in this movie, but the fact that it's discussed with such frankness and that I found- And casualness, like that, that's- Well, no, this is not a casual conversation. No, but like, they're not, they're not- But the movie doesn't dance around it. Yeah, and they're at like, it's like, well, it looks like a proper medical clinic. I think there's a lot that's like, you're supposed to think it's like some, you know, I don't know. It's it's a doctor's office. Yeah. But uh, anyway, I'm just saying I found it oddly refreshing in a way, but- uh the doctor is rightly kind of weirded out by the fact that she needs this right fucking now, but then again, they need it right now, but how do you explain the situation to him? Yeah, well, they have the videotape of Grundle they could play if they really had to. That really would have done it, wouldn't it? Jeff Goldblum whisks her back to the lab. So Stath- so Stathis tracks them, goes back to the lab. And he brings a shotgun. And he brings a shotgun, and it's actually a trap, or it's not necessarily a trap, but Goldblum swoops down. And this is when Stathis gets a little comeuppance for what happened at the top of the movie. Dave, do you want to describe what happens? Absolutely. And I also want to point out, this is the point in the movie, you know, when I said that I've seen the ending of this movie I like was eight times. This is the eight minutes? This is where it starts, with uh, Stathis uh, getting attacked by Jeff Goldblum. Wait, I want to say, for anyone who's listening to this podcast and might watch The Fly, stop listening and watch The Fly because this is something that I, even though you can probably tell what's going to happen, I don't think it should be spoiled. What I found so great about this was like just being just it happening and me being like being able to react to it. Yeah, so this is this is the part of the movie where there's the most holy shit moments bang for your buck. We, we have far. spoiled a lot. Sure. But we haven't spoiled anything. You probably didn't think going in so here we go to the final eight minutes and they're batshit amazing for me craziness this is also like again i want to reiterate i can't believe this was on daytime tv regularly on daytime tv yeah so anyway mathis gets knocked down and stathis oh sorry stathis general mattis gets knocked over (laughs) uh jeff goldblum picks up his left hand and then earlier in the movie, Jeff Goldblum explained that he can't eat solid foods. Like a fly, he vomits digestive juices onto food, which then breaks it down like an acid, and then he sucks back up the gunk, which fortunately we weren't forced to watch. Uh, until now. Until now, when he vomits his acid-like bile onto Stathis's hand and melts it. Melts it, and you see it all. You see it happen. The whole hand down to the wrist melts into a bloody stump, and you even see, like, the congealed flesh all over the floor in a puddle. It's gross as hell. And then he is, like, sort of, like, going for his gun with his right ar- with his right foot, and the fly is like, oh, buddy, you know how this is going to go down. And he vomits even more of it all over his right leg. He vomits it onto the top of his ankle yeah. and melts through it, thereby just like gently separating the foot from the rest of his leg. And then we tee it up. He's going to vom on his face. He's just going to end it. And then... What a way to go. Gina Davis rolls in and is like, please don't do this. Please. <laughs> this is... I I gotta ask, this is just too much. It's so disgusting. Which, okay, so then he's like, actually, here's the master plan. I'm gonna put you in this pod, I'm gonna put me in that pod, and I'm gonna put all of us together into one new thing in that, in pod C. So he's basically taking the prototype and integrate it with the other two. Yeah. So his plan to solve the problem, in quotes, is to genetically merge with her and the unborn baby he's not thinking clearly no 
as and by, the, by the way from gina davis's perspective what a fucking horrifying nightmare to be like can you imagine having this scenario it, it absolutely terrifying on you yeah so and this is this so he explains this to her and as he's about to like throw her in the teleporter she grabs him and pulls his jaw off and at which point the final transformation begins he like like a werewolf insect feet push through human feet and a mandible pushes out of his it's it's a sequence that is you're like this is what i have been this is what i'm here for i am here for this i've been here for 85 minutes baby this is what we came for i came for this full mutation it's an incredibly impressive disgusting scene yeah where you know his legs break backwards into the reverse knee kind of configuration and you know the face comes out from under his original face it's so horrifying yeah the animatronics of it all i mean however they put did it puppetry real effects i mean it's it's really incredible yeah but so as he's doing this he's dragging her towards the first pod which he then hurls her into yeah he gets into the second pod himself but stathis yeah he's still he's still in action here and he blows away the connection to the gina davis pod with his one good hand and his last remaining shotgun shell uh, Jeff Goldblum, Brundlefly sees this, starts busting out of the telepod, gets halfway out, and Too then, late. boom, he and gets teleported along with a whole bunch of pieces of that telepod. Yeah, so because Gina Davis is no longer in the first one, it combines the the, the genetic DNA of the telepod. She's like she's disconnected, but he's also opened up his pod, so oh, like the the I teleportation see. field gets like pieces of the doorway of his pod. We do get an a, an awesome shot of of the combination pod door opening and him crawling out of the smoke. Yeah, and he's now this horrible amalgamation of man, fly, and machine parts. He has like a metal door kind of going through his torso. Yeah, and wires and all kinds of stuff. It's horrible. And he he is, is not doing point. he's not doing well. He's not like we've lost confident villain fly, and now we're at like please put me out of my misery. Right. He takes the shotgun and actually places it on his own head. Yeah. So now Gina Davis is holding the shotgun. She recoils for she a second recoils because she feels so bad for him which is what i found so genuinely kind of moving about her performance is like yeah god no like, i think you're right that's a good character arc that she's not like it's not like a it's not like a horror movie where it's like go to hell fly bitch no she still cares about him and she's very upset about how this has unfolded which yeah. is sweet uh and uh and maybe a little bit like stockholm syndrome at this point of the movie but well for whatever reason she takes a moment it allows him to have a human sad moment where he puts where he when he yeah yeah him saying no you have to do this is like and please yes yeah uh so she blows his fucking brains out yeah now i had a thought about this go ahead if this were a mocap movie so I was like wondering, I was just thinking, do you think Jeff Goldblum is in that final fly makeup costume? Do you think no. he was like as pro as Benedict Cumberbatch on The Hobbit when they were like, all right, Benedict, you just put the mocap things on your face. And he's like, oh, no, no, no. I've got to put them on my whole body. And they're like, well, you don't really have to, Mr. Cumberbatch. I'm doing, I'm doing it. My whole body. Do you think Jeff Goldblum was like, uh, yeah, and uh, when I'm uh, when I'm in the last uh, the last fly thing, uh, uh, yeah, I'm going to be in. And they're like, oh, no, uh, 
you don't have to be in the last one. The last one's like a you're a fly. I said. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't think he's actually in there. If you ever have lunch with him, ask him about Death Wish and then ask him about whether he was in the last costume on the fly. Okay. Part of it, though, is that like that that fly is like Jeff Goldblum is like 25 feet tall. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, um, it just doesn't look big enough to contain him. Okay. But anyway. Fair enough. But you could be right. Who knows? But anyway, so long story short, she blows his brains out and then the movie just ends. It, it, the, it the ends of this movie surprisingly sudden. It ends, and the first thing they do is <coughs> the first thing they do is go to a, sh- a shot, the credits, and the credits are all caps fly designed by Chris Wallace. Which hey, absolutely. I man. mean, well deserved, but Jesus Cronenberg, we couldn't have even got we could have gotten like five seconds of bl- like something to digest what the fuck we just saw. Just puke all over it and digest it, and then suck it back up. Yeah, God, that's gross. It's real gross. Yeah. Well, so anyway, so that's the end of the movie. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about some of the deleted scenes. What? Sorry, I peeked there, I think. There. A little bit, but that's okay. That, what, there were deleted scenes? Yes. There, I, I'm only going to talk about one of them because it's kind of famous. So there is a quote-unquote legendary and infamous sequence that uh, got cut from the final version of the film because they showed it as part of the uh, one of the early test screenings and audience reaction to it was too horrified. They they, they couldn't deal. So compa- think of the rest of this movie. Like this was the scene that was too much and they couldn't have it in the film. You remember the second baboon? Yeah. Did, did you ever wonder what happened to it? Oh, uh, no. This is called the monkey cat scene. It's... <sighs> Partway through the transformation and Jeff Goldblum is still looking for a way to reverse the process. Uh Uh-huh. So he tries sending through a monkey and a cat. And they come out fused together, all like horribly messed up because it's an amalgamation creature and it's an incredible pain. And uh, audience is like, this is too upsetting to see, and it also turned people off of Jeff Goldblum's character too much. They thought it like made him seem too cruel and unfeeling. He has to kill it immediately to put it out of its misery because yeah. it's in so much agony. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, the- but it would only be cruel if he was like cruel about it. I mean, he's trying to. I mean, I don't know. I I'd like to see that. Is that a DVD extra we can watch? Probably. Um. Apparently, as the scene goes on, it goes on to show Brundle then uh scales the wall. Of his place, and you see a there, there's a bulge in his side. Uh, he refers to it at one in one of the scenes that are still in the movie. He's uh. like, "What is this? I don't even know." It's a it's a leg, a fly like leg Ooh. coming out of his torso, and uh, it comes out during the scene, and he chews it off with his own teeth. Wow! And apparently, at least one person supposedly vomited during yeah. the test screening. Don't blame them for that. So they cut it. Yeah. There are also four different alternative endings. All of them involve uh, Veronica, Gina Davis's character, waking up in bed and having various reactions to her pregnancy. So in almost all of them, she is in bed with Stathis and they're implied to be married. And it's either she's still pregnant with Brundle's baby or she's pregnant, but it's Stathis's baby or she doesn't have a baby at all. But all of them involve her then having a dream in which she has Brundle's baby and it grows moth-like wings and flies away. 
Like she has a baby in her arms or she has a baby in her stomach. I'm sorry. I know you don't have a baby in your stomach. I mean, she has a baby in her in her. I, I mean, I haven't seen them. I've only read about them, so I don't know exactly how it's implied. But she's implied to be pregnant or not pregnant, depending on how the scene works out. And then in the dream, the baby is outside of her body and is born, yes. and then has the moth wings and flies. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So. How did this movie do? So, Josh, this movie had a budget of somewhere between nine and fifteen million dollars U.S., which certainly makes sense given how much you know that fly, those fly effects must. Have oh, cost. I mean, for that amount of money, it looks fantastic. Yeah. How much money do you think this made? Eighty-five million dollars. Not quite. It made sixty point six million dollars. Yeah, but that's still really good. And don't forget, this is in nineteen eighties money. Nineteen eighty-six. Nineteen eighty-six. Yeah. Yeah. It was nominated for the oscar for best makeup and it won nice deservedly so nice this is in fact also cronenberg's only film to win an oscar and that's that oscar yeah uh the oscar went to chris wallace and stephen dupuis d-u-p-u-i-s stephen dupuis but uh chris wallace was i think the main guy involved he was also the guy who designed the gremlins from gremlins Oh, wow. Okay. Makes sense, though, right? Yeah. Those are also very wet. Oh, yeah. I could see the similar latex work. Yeah. Gene Siskel was a huge fan of this movie, and uh, he has gone on the record, or went on the record to say that uh, he felt the fact that Jeff Goldblum didn't get an Oscar for this movie is indicative of Hollywood's prejudice against horror movies wow. and sci-fi movies. Yeah. Okay. Gene Siskel was a huge booster for this film. Yeah. The movie's got a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not necessarily, it's a little bit, I suppose, you can kind of uh, call it predictable, I, I guess, but in ways it wasn't. And I, I, don't, I, know, I don't want to derail the critics thing, but I'd say some of the strengths were like, there were very stereotypical horror movie things I expected to happen that never did. Like Stat, like Stathis being killed by Jeff Goldblum at a critical point in the movie. Now, now obviously he he does horrific things to him, but like I thought it might be a little like little shop of horrorsy in a way that it wasn't. Um, but anyway, I agree. I think it I think it holds up to that critic to that ninety one percent. Yeah. Well, and, and also like as opposed to other horror movies, this is something where rather than the killer inflicting horrible things on other people, this is a movie where the horrible stuff is happening unto oneself. Yes. You know. So, although he does try, he tries to force that woman through the transporter, but it's unclear what would have happened to her. As long as there wasn't a fly in there, she probably would have been fine. Yeah, probably. So the fly came in for a lot of critical acclaim, uh, particularly Jeff Goldblum's performance and the special effects. Obviously, this remains the biggest commercial success of Cronenberg's career. Okay, it was number one at the box office for two weeks. So, critics, like I said, Gene Siskel loved this movie. He said, as slimy and as grotesque as some of its special effects become, The Fly is a far superior horror film to the top grossing film in America of late, Aliens. Ooh, I don't know if I believe that, but Aliens, right? Aliens. Yes, the second one. I don't think this is better than Aliens. I agree with you, Josh. Also, I think, I don't know how it was marketed at the time, but Siskel is wrong to call Aliens a horror film. It's more of an action film. Yeah, and and this is... I call this more sci-fi if I was going to put it in a genre, but sci-fi horror, certainly. It's a horror. Yeah. yeah. It's a body horror. Siskel also named The Fly as the 10th best film of 1986. Damn. Tom Charity, cool name, of Time Out magazine, said, 
the playful, quirky chemistry between Goldblum and Davis in the first half of the movie ensures that this gothic horror is heartbreaking as well as stomach-churning. Agreed. Spot on. Absolutely spot on. They did have good chemistry, I'll give them that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe it's because they're both super tall. <laughs> Are they? I, yeah, I guess. Well, I feel like just, I know Jeff Goldblum is super tall. He looks super tall. And Gina Davis appears to be at least within range of him, which mm-hmm. means that she is also pretty tall. Let's go to Wiki Heights, man. Nah, that's okay. On the flip side, a negative review. We have Karen James of the New York Times who says, it's a film that tries to be too many things at once. Funny, but not campy. Sad and scary. A horror story and a human tragedy. Disagree. And I don't care for reviews where they make claims like that. We where they're like, it tries to be this, but it it tries to be like saying it's trying to be too many things is as admitting that it is too many things. You're just saying that you don't like all the genre blending. Because I did think it was campy and scary and real and emotional. Like, I think it, it I think it hit all those beats. I mean, I guess it, you can do as much as you want. It just depends on how good you are at balancing all those things. Yeah. You know, you can have as many tones as you want, provided the audience doesn't get whiplash from moving between them. Speaking of this movie's legacy, a lot of people... Now, keep in mind, this was released in 1986... So a lot of people viewed this movie as being an allegory for the AIDS epidemic. Interesting. So Cronenberg himself was surprised by this. He said that um, he originally intended this movie to be more of an analogy for disease in general, like uh, or any kind of terminal condition. So like cancer, but for him, most generally the aging process itself. Mm-hmm. You know. So what he said was. If you or your lover has AIDS, you watch that film, and of course you'll see AIDS in it. But you don't have to have that experience to respond emotionally to the movie, and I think that's really its power. This is not to say that AIDS didn't have an incredible impact on everyone, and of course, at a certain point, people were seeing AIDS stories everywhere. But I don't take any offense that people see that in my movie. For me, though, there was something about the Fly story that was much more universal about aging and death, something all of us have to deal with. Yeah, I guess, you know, you could talk about some of the actual early stages of the makeup and the and, and the stuff as being related to, to you know. I mean, uh, because I've done this research as yeah. we were watching it, you are correct in some of those early stages, especially also the interactions between Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis of him being like, yes, something is wrong and I am sick and like, can you come over and help me? And then it's her balancing her horror at his physical state but also wanting to be supportive including physically supportive like is she gonna hug him is she not and she does you know but i do i for me that what he says rings very true which is you could look at any a lot of things from that period through the lens and the lens fits because of when the work took place and some of the things about it but I will buy and I fully believe that that was this is not that's not the sole purpose or intention of this movie. That's just something that you can take away with it if you view it through that. Sure. I mean, I just basically I'm kind of surprised Cronenberg was surprised because this movie you saw that what we just saw like this movie coming out in 1986. I feel like the comparisons are unavoidable. Yeah. Well, to a certain extent, he probably was so uh, when sometimes you get so immersed in a material he was immersed probably in the original story and the original movie which obviously are from a period of time before the aids epidemic it's not a panic movie 
I mean, it's AIDS is not something that happens because of, because you're trying to transport yourself through a machine, and he doesn't get the issue. He doesn't become a fly because of sex. So I feel like it is a bit of a stretch to say this is like a negative. I don't know to say that that's what this. Well, I don't think about. anyone was saying that it was negative. Just oh, that they read that interpretation into the movie. Got it. You know that it's an allegory. Well, but it is. I mean, if you all right, well then what I'm saying is if you do put that allegory on top of it, it ends with him requesting to be as killed like yeah, it's pretty fucking dark yeah anyhow so jesus is a political podcast app yeah are you sure we're not on pod save america as a matter of fact josh i'd like to reveal our secret guest please welcome john Fav- blah, blah, blah. no it's john favreau it's just not that john favreau it's I john know. favreau the director of iron man no i just stumbled over the name is all yeah anyway so this movie has a sequel called the fly 2 it's not any good i'm interested to hear a little bit more about it though you're gonna have to look that up on your own <laughs> there's also a comic book uh spinoff called the fly outbreak all right. There have been a couple aborted attempts to remake this film, including a few by Cronenberg himself in the aughts and the tens. He doesn't usually do sequels, but he was willing to look into doing it for this one. And they aren't—they weren't really supposedly going to be direct sequels, but more kind of like related side projects. Got it. Uh, Goldblum has expressed some interest, but it sounds like mostly it, it's him being like he'd like to work with Cronenberg again. Mm-hmm. Um, and nothing has come of it so far. However, in 2008, David Cronenberg did direct the opera adaptation of this movie, which was created by Howard Shore. Interesting. Yeah. I was thinking about this. Like, would it be an interesting stage play? I absolutely think it would. You only need one set. But wouldn't it be like you couldn't one set, three characters? I just don't know if you could try to do that level of effects you need a massive massive budget well maybe they had that um but for a piece of live theater it would be so hard to do so much of this stuff although you could have a rotating set that could be pretty cool it'd be very impressive and the trick could be that she's she's standing on the floor you could get julie tamor to do it yeah yeah, yeah. there's Um, an effect like that in the broadway mary poppins where uh bert tap dances around the entire proscenium of the theater oh neat yeah, except it takes like 20 minutes. Well, anyway, <laughs> sorry. Little theater talk, everybody. Time Magazine named The Fly one of the 25 best horror films of all time in 2007. Uh, okay, I'll say it's it's uh, probably in my top 25 horror. Uh, not, not my favorite Cronenberg, but top five Cronenberg. So I would say in my top 200 movies. That's fair. Probably towards the low end. That's fair. Well, that being the case, Josh, what did you think of The Fly when all is said and done? All right, I'm gonna have an interesting verdict for you, despite everything we've said. I'm, I'm gonna just, I'm gonna do it's a better late, but with a qualifier. All right, you have to like this type of shit. Totally, you have to be into practical effects and sci-fi and horror. If none of those are your things, then this is a never. And if these are your things, it's it's not just a better late; it's a run out and see it co-signed 100 this is a great film if you like horror movies especially if you have a strong stomach it's never if you don't uh if you're into cronenberg this is an absolute must but if you are familiar with his work and it's just not for you i would totally stay away and i i want to highlight just going to the where we started with spider you you didn't like spider 
at the time. I don't think you said it was you thought it was a bad movie, but you're just like, I wasn't in the mood for it. It was not to my taste. And that is Cronenberg's to in a nutshell. You have to be kind of in the mood for it. You have to be kind of in the in the right m- mindset for it. Especially this one. Like, you know, if you've seen Eastern Promises or History of Violence or any one of his sort of late period prestige work, this is not akin to those. This is much more in line with his earlier, more independent work. Yeah. You know? So when people say body horror, this... This is what they mean, and, this movie. And, you know, maybe, I mean, I'm going to either pursue them independently or we'll do them for the pod, but I'm I'm very excited. This makes me even more excited now for scanners and Videodrome. Yeah, we're going to get you to do those, don't worry. Oh, yeah. Well, Josh, it has been a pleasure having you on the program. Good to be back. Been too many months. Now, yeah. I'd like to uh, drop a little plug if I can. All right, but, you know, this isn't coming out for, like, months. Uh, all right. Well, hopefully by then I plan on having some seed money for <laughs> Fly 2, Son of Fly, Oh, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> I love it. Let's yeah. talk more about that off air. It's going to star Michael Sarah. Ooh. And Jeff Goldblum is going to reprise his role. Oh my god! And we're in talks to get Gina Davis back. What an amazing! Pr- and so uh, Michael Sarah is the son of Fly. Yeah, yeah, of and course. He's, re- he's perfect. He's perfect for Jeff Goldblum's son. Yeah, it's true. That's true. Oh, I, well, although I, I guess also we should uh, offer to Nick Kroll just in case because he's actually played Jeff Goldblum's son on the league. If you'd like to contact the podcast, we're available via email at betterlatethaneverpod at gmail dot com, and you can always tweet us at better late underscore pod thanks for listening we'll catch you next time buzz